Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, and subbing in again for Emma Ashford while she's out on maternity leave is John Glazer, Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Hi, John. Hi, Trevor. Today, we're diving into a topic that doesn't get nearly enough discussion, uh, and that's civil-military relations, and in particular, public attitudes towards the military and its role in public life. Since the 1980s, the polls have shown that a majority of the public has a great deal of confidence in the U.S. military, and over the past 20 years, the military has been the most trusted major American institution by far. Given the incredible cost and futility of the post-9-11 military adventures we've been on, uh, this enduring confidence raises interesting questions about the sources of the public's attitudes toward the military. Related to this is the rise of both militarized patriotism and the politicization of the military. Though no one would suggest that we should not thank members of the military for their service, since 9-11 many people have equated support for the military and military adventures abroad with patriotism, making debates about national security far more difficult. And at the same time, political leaders of both parties have increasingly used the military and support for U.S. military operation as political tools. And given this, it should come as no surprise that military leaders now play a far bigger role in political life than the founders would have been comfortable with. Joining us today to discuss these issues is David Burbach, Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. David, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, John. All right. Let's let's hit that first puzzle right off because, David, you've written about this extensively. What can we... How can we explain public confidence in the military after I, you know, what I will just generously call mixed results? Uh, maybe someone would call failures over the last eighteen or nineteen years, and and you know, on top of that, clear evidence that fewer and fewer people actually want to serve in the military. Sure. Well, first, let me start out by saying that I am speaking for myself here today. I'm not representing the Naval War College, the Navy, or the U.S. government. Um, but just to, uh, I think you're, you're right, Trevor, this is a, a really a fascinating problem. And just to provide your listeners a bit of context, uh, when people say the military is the most trusted, most respected, inspires the most confidence, uh, they're referring to surveys that have been done since the 1960s asking people, are you confident in such and such institution like the military or Congress or big business or the medical establishment? And back in the 1960s, uh, the military scored pretty well on such surveys. After the Vietnam War in the 1970s, confidence in the military declined pretty substantially. Uh, and in fact, in the mid-1970s, the military actually inspired less confidence than journalism, uh, you know, which may seem surprising from today's standpoint. Uh, but from the 1980s, from the early 1980s on, confidence in the military has steadily increased. Uh, and especially after the uh, surprising fast victory in the first Gulf War, uh, there was a significant increase and then again, a big increase after 9-11. And in fact, the military is the only major institution in which confidence has increased since 1980, pretty much across the board throughout society. And this is true in, in other uh, Western democracies, too. Uh, confidence in institutions has been in pretty steady decline since the 1970s. 
Um, now, the common explanation for this for the military used to be, well, it's successful at what it does. You know, we invaded Grenada, we invaded Panama, the Gulf War went well. We had a bunch of uh, low casualty interventions in the 1990s. Um, but as you note, uh, people don't really think that Iraq and Afghanistan were successful. If you look at public opinion, the majority of Americans think that those uh, wars have been failures, that we didn't achieve our national security goals. Um, and yet confidence in the military is higher than ever. Um, so why is that? If, if it's all about being successful, why would confidence be so high even after uh, those failures? And I, and I should say, if you had asked social scientists or military professionals in the 1990s, if we were locked in 15 year long insurgencies and had 7,500 Americans killed, trillions of dollars spent, do you think confidence in the military would go down? And I'm, I'm willing to bet almost everybody would have said yes back then. Uh, so I see four main ways to, uh, to look at this. I think all, all of these are operating. Um, one, well, then just to, to give your, your listeners those four, uh, performance or at least a repaired version of it, professionalism, partisanship and patriotism in uh, patriotism light or the military or militarized patriotism, as you put it for performance. Um, while people don't think the wars went very well, they don't necessarily blame the military. Uh, we have survey data showing that if, if you ask people, um, you know, who do you blame for the losses? Iraq, especially people tend to blame civilian officials or President Bush, Don Rumsfeld, um, less so than the military. Uh, I've seen some recent survey data asking, you know, it seems like America has trouble winning wars these days. Who, whose fault do you think it is? And uh, more people say that it's because of bad strategy or bad directions from civilian leaders than because, quote, the generals, unquote, don't know how to fight the wars. That so seems just, be, just to break no, in, that seems like an entirely sure. reasonable proposition. I mean, I'm I'm utterly terrible at fixing things around my house, but I... I blame myself and not the hammer. So, <laughs> no, that's a that's a very fair point. Now, the the you know a uh, question that raises is, uh, does the military have an incentive to try and point the finger at civilian leaders? And and when we talk about uh, politicization and effects of that, I think that's that's an important question. So, you know, the the experiment that I hope we never run would be if we have something that's just kind of a straight up fair, you know, quote unquote, fair fight tactically, you know, some U.S. ships versus Chinese ships in the South China Sea and the U.S. military loses. Um, will the public react differently there where it really does sort of look like a military loss? And again, I don't want to run that experiment, but but we, you know, it, it, it may be the counterinsurgency. It's especially easy to go, well, you know, who who knows what the what the fault was? Um, what I think is important is my second point, professionalism, is that the U.S. military has still looked like a very professional, disciplined, competent fighting force, even while getting these disappointing outcomes. And that's a big difference from the post-Vietnam era, where you saw in the early 1970s rampant drug abuse, race riots, um, mutinies and insubordination, uh, troops fragging, killing their own officers in Vietnam. Uh, the first years of the all-volunteer force really did not go very well. 
uh, very low quality troops, uh, scandals where recruiters were faking results in order to get people in, even a big cheating scandal at West Point in uh, the mid 1970s. So when we look at those really low confidence numbers from the 1970s, I suspect part of that was not simply that we lost Vietnam, but that it looked like the military was falling apart in the wake of that defeat. And that just isn't the case today. There's been very little drug use, um, no insubordination. Morale has, you know, it's, it's been tough, but it hasn't been anything like the kind of, of, you know, stress on the force in the wake of Vietnam. So Americans can look at their military and they still see what looks like a well-functioning, disciplined, competent, skilled military. Um, in terms of partisanship, uh, one reason confidence is so high is because it is super high for Republicans. Uh, looking at some recent data uh, among Republicans, something like 80, just under 80 percent say they have a great deal of confidence in the military compared to the mid 50s for Democrats and independents. So part of why confidence has stayed so high is you, you just can't shake the love from Republicans. Uh, you know, they're there, that gap has not always been true. Uh, if you go back to the 1970s through uh, really through the mid 1990s, uh, the gap was usually only pretty small, only about 5%. And there were a few periods where Democrats actually had higher confidence than Republicans. But really, ever since 9 11, uh, a huge gap has opened up uh, on a partisan basis. And, and I know we'll, we'll talk more about that partisan difference. And the other issue, as you alluded to with the mention of militarized patriotism or uh, term uh, military sociologist Charles Moskos came up with, patriotism light, uh, is that people just feel they ought to thank the troops. And I, I think that probably extends to these sorts of surveys. If you ask people, do you feel confident in the military? Well, nobody's going to want to say, no, I don't think the troops are any good. Uh, and in fact, we do have some recent survey experiment data from uh, Peter Fever at Duke University that if you give people, if, if you sort of, if you give people information signaling either that, hey, fewer of your neighbors think the troops are great than, than you probably believe, or you signal, boy, everybody in America thinks they're awesome, that will really affect people's survey responses. So I think part of this confidence is nobody wants, in the same way nobody wants to say, I am not thankful for your service, nobody really wants to say I'm not confident. Um, so it may, there may be a real element of some very superficial, well, sure, I'm going to say they're great, even if that, that may not mean very much underneath. David, you, a while back you mentioned um, confidence in institutions generally in uh, Western countries is high. Um, and as you're talking just this last minute, you know, it struck me that, of course, f uh, favorable views towards the military is common throughout the world. Mas nationalism is a very powerful force and it comes in many forms, but one of those forms is kind of the valoration, valorization of the military. Um, so how is it that the United States is different or is the United States different? Certainly seems like we have more, we use the military more than our peer nations. We have more opportunities for uh, valorization and ceremony or in flyovers at sporting events. So is there data on how, how it is that we're unique within this respect? 
Sure, that's a great question. Uh, compared to uh, other, well, I'd say confidence in most institutions around the world is low. Uh, to, um, in Western Europe, similar to the United States, confidence in most public institutions is pretty low. And for all that, that a lot of people imagine that the United States is really unusual with this uh, valorization of the military, in most uh, Western European countries, it's also the case that the military is the most trusted institution. Um, not always as high as in the United States, but still really quite high. And that's especially true uh, in Britain and France, where the numbers are really not drastically different than the United States. It's less true in Germany. Um, however, it turns out Germans actually express pretty low confidence in all of their institutions. So even in Germany, the military tends to come out on top, but with all their institutions at a fairly low level. Uh, the only country that I've seen uh, recently where the military is behind other civilian institutions uh, in Sweden, uh, the military, I believe, comes in a little, inspires a little less confidence or trust than some of their civilian institutions. So, yeah, around the world, we, we do. And it when you get to beyond that, uh, public opinion data gets more spotty, but it, it does seem pretty common. There are countries where the military scores very, very poorly. And, uh, you know, you can imagine in countries, if there's been a recent history of coups or military abuses, uh, that might be true. Uh, and I, I think we, we still have a lot of work to do to understand how that, how that works, uh, cross nationally. Um, but in general, there, there's, you know, the 1970s really seem to be a breaking point for uh, most societies where confidence and trust in big institutions goes way down. Um, I think the the military stays high because, uh, you know, I, I, I don't I haven't seen data on this as much in other countries, but I suspect it's a similar pattern. Um, people see the military as being more uh, selfless, as providing service, as as doing a job that many people wouldn't want to do. And if you look at other professions that generate a whole lot of respect, uh, I mean, you see something very similar for police or fire services, uh, or if you surveys about what professions are respected, uh, nurses do, doctors do well, nurses do even better, because uh, I think there's more of a perception that it doesn't pay as well, and so nurses are making a real sacrifice. Veterinarians, oddly enough, uh, really score well on the respect and, and trust scale, too. Anybody who has to deal with my dogs gets all the respect. <laughs> So there's, if, if you only knew how bad Fritz smells. Um, all right. Well, on a slightly more serious note, you know, it, it's very interesting because um, there's not really any, you know, objective level in a healthy democracy where you could sort of pin, you know, support for the military or confidence in institutions and say, this is exactly the right, right amount of confidence. You shouldn't have more and you shouldn't have less. I mean, there are dangers, I think, to either side of too much and too little. Um, you know, David, where would you assess um, where we're at today in terms of this confidence? Because my take is that, especially since 9-11, and this, this is an interesting, I'm old enough to have seen this go in, in waves, sort of as you've suggested, where, you know, during the Cold War, support for the military was, you know, a bumpy, but, but in general, quite high because, you know, Cold War. Then the 90s was a weird sort of a lull, weird period, and then 9-11. And since then, I feel not just because of the terrorist attacks, um, not just because of the actual wars, but because of 
actual purposeful efforts by political leaders, uh, the, the rise in this sort of militarized patriotism, my sense is that there's a little too much uh, and it, that it might have some consequences that are not so good. So where, where would you put it and, and what do you think the consequences of the trend have been? I think what concerns me the most is where the military stands relative to other institutions and the fact that the uh, the military, uh, well, looking at uh, this year's Gallup data, that uh, the military, 73% of the uh, respondents have a great deal of confidence in the military versus 11% in Congress, 24% in the criminal justice system, 29% in public schools. Uh, 38% in the Supreme Court. So the fact that the military ranks so much higher than other public institutions, uh, I find that somewhat worrying with uh, with a number of consequences. Um, I guess one caveat first is that just because the public loves the military so much doesn't mean that they are completely deferential to military preferences. Like e even though support is so high, um, other surveys show a majority of Americans would prefer to cut the defense budget than to raise the defense budget or surveys asking, uh, you know, do you favor using diplomacy or military force, uh, including, I think, some of the, the surveys uh, by uh, by Cato people uh, show that, yeah, the public the public is not does not say let's always use the military hammer first and only. Uh, there is a lot of support for diplomacy or a lot of skepticism about a lot of potential military interventions. So uh, although there's this, uh, you know, this great deal of affection and trust expressed, um, it doesn't mean the military completely gets its way politically. Nevertheless, uh, it does, I think, mean that uh, uh, as a phrase, uh, the title of a book by uh, former DOD official Rosa Brooks, that war becomes everything and everything becomes war. That if the institution that you trust far more than any other is the military, it becomes natural to want to seek military solutions, not, not only to international foreign policy problems, but I mean, even domestically, I mean, we see calls to use the military for all sorts of things. Um, and uh, and I, I think that is potentially unhealthy. Um, also, if the military is untouchable politically, there's not much pressure on the military to learn from its mistakes and to reform. Uh, you know, coming out of Vietnam, there actually was a lot of introspection on the part of the military. Uh, the army in particular really rethought how they instill professionalism, what their doctrine was going to be. I mean, it, it, it you know, the fact that they face so little trust from the public really forced the, uh, the military to, to take a hard look and make some changes that I think ended up being changes for the better. Uh, if there's not much external pressure, it's natural for an institution to uh, not ask as many hard questions. And I, I don't think, you know, you, you do see when the military does poorly on what I would call taking care of soldiers issues like military housing, uh, sex assault, uh, you do see more political pressure there. But when it comes to military strategy, weapons purchases, uh, you know, I think there there may be, you know, too much deference. Um, and I think if the military is, is given so much respect, it makes it more possible for them to uh, have undue political influence. Now, whether they're, they're using that or not, we can talk about, um, but that they, that they stand so high above other public institutions uh, you know, certainly raises that possibility. Yeah. And, and that reminds me of a fantastic and chilling 
article that I remember reading back in grad school, and I'm going to forget the exact date of it, but Charles Dunlap's piece about oh, the yes. American military coup of what year was it supposed to be? 2012. Yes, that's it. 2012. And thank mm-hmm. God it didn't happen. But but his point was mm-hmm. very much what you just pointed out. And he was writing this back in what, 1991 or something mm-hmm. around there, which was that, hey, it, it looks like our only competent federal institution is the military. So if there's a flood, let's get them to pick up. If there's a immigration problem, let's get them to do it. And the problem, if you keep giving them all the jobs, is that they become everything. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't think things got as much worse as quickly as, as, as his article might have made you worry. But at the same time, I think we're still in very much of a holding pattern where I think that remains the case, that they look like, and, you know, Trump's stuff on the border, you know, that, that exact sort of thing is there. We've danced with that a little bit. Uh, no, I think that's exactly true. And, and I think, you know, one limiting factor uh, compared to the, the 1990s might be that we're busy, the military is busy enough now in fighting actual wars that there's a little more pressure to not have the military take on everything. Where in the 1990s, uh, the military was somewhat more in need of missions, so they, they may have not resisted as much. Uh, but yeah, we, we are certainly finding ways uh to use the military for other problems and uh trump just as a legal matter as well generally the president has more authority to use national security rationales to move money around in the defense budget so not only is there the the political incentive to do that uh the president has a little more freedom of action when it comes to uh dod than most agencies right well let, let's pivot right off that because i think you know one of the implications of this of this trend has been the increasing politicization of the military as politicians find it useful to securitize other issues and to bring military ish <laughs> uh, arguments to bear or military leaders to bear on their side of political debates. Um, is there is there a any kind of a data set or a, what kind of evidence do we have? How do we measure politicization of the military anyway? Sure, there are, there are a couple of ways you might look at that. Um, and in terms of, of you know, one would be political political action by the military. Uh, and another side of that would be political use of the military by politicians. Uh, on the political action side, uh, and one of the more dramatic things that we've seen is a big increase in retired uh, officers, uh, retired generals, retired admirals, uh, endorsing political candidates, uh, engaging in political commentary. Uh, there was actually just this morning, uh, Alice Hunt friend posted a, a Twitter thread discussing this, and she, uh, I haven't been able to verify this, but she, she, I would, I'll trust her on this, uh, that uh, one of the very first prominent uh, endorsements of the modern era was uh, for George H. I think it was, was it PX Kelly for George H.W. Bush? But for George H.W. Bush in 1988, at least, um, it was really pretty rare during the Cold War to uh, directly get endorsements from recently retired general officers. And that number has certainly gone up. And, you know, to, to the point that in 2016, we saw Mike Flynn, retired General Mike Flynn, uh, not merely endorsing Trump, but leading a lock her up chant on live TV at the national convention. So that there's definitely been an increase uh, there. Um, the military as a whole definitely skews pretty strongly Republican, maybe not as much as I mean, people may assume that it's 98 98- 
percent Republican, uh, but it, it's not that much. But the the officer corps especially leans pretty Republican, uh, a little bit less so enlisted. Um, and that actually has been pretty stable. There has not been a, a big partisan increase there. Uh, and in fact, if you control for the demographics of who joins the military, because officers uh, tend to be uh, still to this day, overwhelmingly male, uh, generally white, you know, white Southern Christian uh, is, you know, kind of the modal demographic and, you know, uh, white Southern Christian males tend to be Republican. So it, it actually it, it tracks reasonably well with the demographics. Um, I think there there has been uh, some study suggesting you, you see more political discussion, uh, social media posts from from soldiers, although, you know, I don't think we really have a data set on what got talked about in the barracks in a way that nobody could have seen before. So we it may be more visible. Um, so you know, I don't I don't think we see a lot of political activity by the the active duty force, but certainly re- retired uh, o- uh, officers are becoming more prominent politically. On the using the military side, um, well, I mean, as as the president is different in so many ways, I think the Trump Trump has been less careful about avoiding using the military in political, you know, for political staging than most of his predecessors. I mean, there have been a number of events where uh, Trump has been, you know, in front of uniform military or on stage with uniform military and made political comments, even in an event that wasn't supposed to be a political rally. Usually presidents have been pretty good about avoiding making you know, partisan comments while in that sort of setting. That that's been much less true for Trump. He's even had tweets suggesting that the military is on his side. Uh, you know, even suggesting he's got tough guys on his side and Democrats better watch out. And that that is certainly worrying. Or the use of the uh, you know the the border wall, uh, getting the military using you know using several billion dollars of military funding. Uh, to try and fulfill what's basically a symbolic campaign promise. Um, I mean, you do see both sides try and invoke the military to support uh, other policy goals they want. I mean, during the uh, government shutdown, Trump made a big deal about, well, the shutdown hurts the troops. Well, I mean, it hurts a lot of people. It hurts civilian employees, hurts people dependent on all kinds of government programs, but it was, it'll hurt the troops. But by the same token, uh, I know in uh, I was looking over some Senate hearings on the defense authorization bill. Senator Gillibrand actually asked about whether uh, cutting food stamps that the administration requested wouldn't cutting food stamps hurt recruitment because if people had less access to healthy food via food stamps, teen obesity would be higher. And it's, you know, the save food stamps because the military needs, you know, healthy recruits seems like a pretty tenuous link to me, but it's, you you see Democrats make exactly that kind of argument as well. So I want to ask you about something that's been in the news recently. Uh, There's this quirky little issue of James Mattis who got a a waiver to be, to serve in a civilian role, Secretary of Defense, um, a short time after his uh, retirement. Uh, And now there's this question about him, you know, really being reluctant and uh, to make public comments about Trump. and his claim is essentially that you know it'd be a bad idea for the for military leaders to engage in this kind of thing at this moment in time, which is a little squirrely because he 
got that waiver to serve in a civilian position. And so one would think that that there might be some change there, but he seems not to see it. How do you conceptualize this? Uh, yeah, for Mattis in particular, I mean, I, uh, I, I think if, if you can't put away the uniform and accept that you have become a part of a, you know, you've become a political appointee, you shouldn't take the job. And I, 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 I'll admit I am, uh, I am disappointed with how Mattis has handled uh, this situation. Uh, I mean, he can't get around it. He accepted a political job in a, in, you know, as a political appointee. And I think the, the way in particular that he's sort of trying to have it, uh, have both sides, uh, sometimes fending off questions saying, well, it's not right for a recently retired general to answer that. Uh, in other cases, some issues he will talk about. I mean, I, 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 I think he would he would be in a he would have a, a stronger leg to stand on if he uh, had simply not written the book, not done any interviews, and said, "I don't think it's appropriate for me to say anything." So the the, the way that he's trying to have it both ways, I think, is particularly disappointing. Um, but yeah, you, um, I mean, a civilian political appointed job is fundamentally a civilian political job. And I think the the way that the Trump administration has been trying to leverage military credibility by putting uh, putting generals into what generally would be civilian roles, uh, you know, maybe a little less of that. I mean, I we haven't I don't think we've seen that as often with recent appointees, but certainly with Mattis, uh, with Kelly, with McMaster. Um, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I would probably prefer to see, uh, recently retired, uh, general and flag officers stay away from those jobs. I, you know, I think the, the logic of not allowing a recent retiree to be sec def was good. Um, not just because they're going to, of the fear that they'll be too, you know, they'll be too focused on defending service interests, but, um, you know, I, I think they, they grow up so to speak, in such an environment of deference to civilian authority that, you know, the job of SECDEF is partly to say no to presidents or at least to try and convince uh, a president to listen to no. Um, And it's to understand a president's political concerns at the same time. Um, And I'm not sure that military officers are particularly good at that or if they are really good at being political. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm not sure that's that's the ideal role model to put out. So uh, I think Mattis in particular, again, has really been trying to have it both ways. But, you know, in in general, this, you know, let's let's fill senior positions with with military officers. Uh, I'm not very comfortable with that. You know, I wonder if the distinction that they're trying to make is, oh, I'll comment on uh, policy, but not politics. It seems to me military leaders have had very little reluctance to talk about policy. I think back to the uh, Iraq war days. And there was this big, I think, prize-winning uh, investigation by the New York Times of uh, cable news television shows um, bringing on acting and former uh, high-level mi- uh, military people, generals, to comment on you know the need to continue the fight. It was clearly had a mm-hmm. policy view uh, that one could frame as partisan or perhaps less than... Uh, less than objective. But politics, they seem to draw some kind of line there. Of course, that line is is deeply subjective. Yeah, the the problem is that, I mean, 
you know, foreign policy is inherently political. I mean, I, I don't mean in the, uh, you know, what we just heard from Mick Mulvaney, the sense of uh, using foreign policy for, you know, crass personal political aims. Uh, but I mean, we, there, there is no objectively right foreign policy. And so when a retired officer says, well, I'm not saying we should stay in Syria as a matter of politics. It's just objectively the right national security policy. Um, I, I don't doubt that they're not that they're trying to be nonpartisan, um, but there is no objectively right answer to that sort of question. So you, you really can't, you know, to say, my preferred policy is objectively right, and your preferred policy is a political recommendation. Uh, I think privileges military expertise in a way that that's wrong. So, uh, you know, Peter uh, Duke University's Peter Fever said that uh, you know a way to think of it is that politicians have the right to be wrong. Um, it's better if they're if they if they're right. But civilian leadership has the the right to be wrong in their foreign policy uh, decisions, and I mean it's it's a it's a tough issue because certainly we do want expertise on some issues. I mean, if we're asking about you know the technical details of a new weapon system, well, of course it's going to be reasonable to get military input on you know what their requirements are, what they need. Um, somewhere between kind of really low level technical tactical stuff and should we go fight this war or not that balance shifts much more to the civilian side where you know a retired officer has has an opinion but it's it i think is is bad for our democratic debate if they suggest that well when i have an opinion it's non-political you all have political opinions and that's and that's amplified if people have sort of uh, an irrational deference or confidence in that military person just because they're wearing a uniform and not because of the actual logic behind their arguments exactly uh, for for sure which which is makes this all a very interesting cluster of of issues um so l- let's let's talk a little bit about just just pushing the the partisan sort of political angle a little bit um you know everyone loves our military of course but uh, the GOP seems to love it a little more um and you know there's always been a liberal conservative divide over the use of military force um but is there is there a, a sort of a bigger divide is there a worrying divide at this point between liberals and conservatives um i i think so uh for a couple of reasons i mean i said that since 9 11 the uh and and really since iraq the the gap has opened pretty widely um and uh one pattern that you know we 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 don't have enough variation to be absolutely sure of this but it also appears that Republicans love the military, but they love it more when the president is a Republican. Uh, like confidence among Republicans in the military went from just over 60 percent to just under 80 percent. So about a 17, 18 percent increase from 2016 to 2018 uh, or even more dramatically uh, sort of survey on how's the fight how is the fight against ISIS going uh, in late 2016 just before the election Republicans were more depressed about that fight than anybody ever was about Iraq in 2006 within six months 70 plus percent of Republicans thought the fight was going really well I mean nothing really changed other than Donald Trump became commander-in-chief so it's increasingly I, I see signs that it isn't just that Republicans trust the military it's that they tr- especially trust it when a Republican is president and 
you know, that all creates incentives for the military to like to see Republicans as president. And, you know, it, it would be institutionally natural. Uh, so I think that I think that is concerning that there's such a, a, a close identification brewing and that Republicans seem to to equate commander in chief Republican with military in good shape. And that's our daily reminder that the general polarization of American politics is very, very bad for business because there's no way to undo that without first undoing the more general, you know, uber polarization between liberals and conservatives these days. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. what's happening with the military is more a manifestation of larger trends than it is, you know, the other way around. I mean, that the causality is polarization, uh, you know, not not fundamentally civil military relations. Yeah. yeah, it also reminds us not to take public opinion polling too seriously because <laughs> twenty point swings in six months aren't are a pretty good sign that there's something other than actual opinions going on. So, exactly. There's <laughs> there's a lot of tribalism going yeah, absolutely. on. Absolutely. I have a wild question that is not necessarily uh, apropos. Uh, sure. To what extent do you think uh, the public's attitudes toward the toward the military and and also you know just their their perception in uh, Washington? To what extent do you think that actually has an impact on U.S. foreign policy? Uh, you know, if it's politically untenable for many people to, for example. Um, decrease the military budget or uh, suggest that the military is a tool that is appropriate in some cases but not in others and therefore let's not deploy them in this, that, or the other place. You know, if, th if that is costly at times politically for, for people to make, it's essentially saying, well, if you, if you lessen the power and uh, um, relevance of this institution, you will be doing a disservice to it and therefore the policies you advocate should be more deployments, more interventions, more money for the military. I mean, I think there is some of that. Uh, I mean, like I said, if you if you look at like, for example, support for the military for uh, raising or lowering the military budget, support for raising military spending actually does not track up the way confidence and trust does over time. So in there, there is some of that sort of part superficiality, whether it be the thank you for your service or the partisanship. Um, so I'm I'm not, you know, we we don't completely defer to the military, but I, I think the general point that um, you know you you don't you know it, it's certainly a lot easier uh, to win elections by beating up on diplomats or civil servants than on the military. Uh, I mean, it is while the military, while most people may be in favor of reducing or at least not raising the military budget, the most unpopular sort of spending is uh, the foreign assistance budget, uh, State Department budget. Uh, so I, I, I think that, you know, the special status of the military, you know, I, I think does make it difficult to propose cuts or, and you especially see this uh, with pay and benefits. I mean, the defense department and senior military leadership uh, would love to have not uh, had military pay increases be as large as they are since 9-11 uh, to rein in healthcare spending, to do pension system reforms. Uh, but if, if there's a third rail of, of defense spending, uh, it's pay and benefits. And it's, it's, uh, you know, people are a lot more willing to say, 
uh, let's not build a new bomber and take away some profits from Northrop Grumman uh, than they are to say, hey, let's make retirees pay more for TRICARE or let's reform VA services. Uh, and I think that's you, you, you really see this operating on that side, that it's it's, you know, the the military leadership would like to actually reduce personnel costs and think that we were over investing on that side. Uh, but the politics there is very difficult to touch. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, I, my, one of my goals with this episode of Power Problems was to help pierce the the curtain of false confidence and get people thinking harder about the importance of the military playing in a neutral role in our public life and and so forth. But a recent conference paper by uh, Peter Fever at Duke, who you've mentioned, and Jim Golby, um, suggests that that the impact of our podcast might be in in fact, the exact opposite, because they ran an experiment that found when the public was told that um, the military had become just as partisan as other political institutions, that their confidence in the military actually increased uh, rather than what we would hope, which would be maybe the opposite. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what the heck that means? Uh, yeah, that. That was a surprising finding. I, I actually was on that same panel uh, as uh, Peter and Jim, and uh, they they are surprised and confused by that themselves. Uh, one possible explanation that, that might come to mind is maybe a lot of people thought the military was 100% Republican. And so if you tell them the military is split in the same partisan way as the country, maybe Democrats feel better about it because they figured it was all Republicans. Nah, that's not it. It's it's sort of across the board. Um, it's it's interesting because it actually runs directly against an earlier survey experiment by Fever, uh, looking at do partisan endorsements by retired military uh, cause change how people think of the military. And in that experiment, they found that making endorsements lowers confidence. Um, so they, I, I think we're all a little confused on that. Um, and I know what they intend to do is they want to go back and run some more experiments, uh, look at some exactly how they are phrasing the questions. Because, I mean, if if essentially what people feel that they're learning is the military is just like the rest of us. Well, you know, maybe maybe that doesn't sound so bad. The, their particular question did not say, like, the military is full of extremists scheming to, you know, wreck democracy. I mean, it was it was a pretty, hey, the military is split just like the country. So maybe maybe that came across as the military is just normal and representative of society. Um, I but I, I think you add up that and a few other uh, data points that I've seen. And while civil military relations scholars tend to, you know, our, our alarm bells tend to go off very quickly uh, at the notion of a political military, I think there's some suggestive evidence that maybe the public isn't as worried about that as we are. And now maybe that's because they haven't thought through what's the end point, what did this lead to? Uh, maybe there's room for some public education there. Um, but I, I, I I can tell you this is going to be uh, it's going to be a topic that more people are going to want to run some surveys on and try and figure this out. But, uh, you know, I I will I will I will see Peter and Jim again at a conference next month and maybe they've made some more progress. But I know there was a real head. You know, you had a bunch of really good civil military relations people all in one room and we all kind of looked at each other like, huh, 
that's not what any of us would have expected. So we're, we're still trying to figure that out. All right. Well, that's, that's fair science, I guess. Right. Um, exactly. All right. To wrap us up here, uh, quickly, let me get one prediction from you about where you think, uh, things are headed, any sort of the one most important, interesting, dangerous, whatever uh, trend, and then one thing that the next president could do to make things better. Sure. I I think a really interesting trend to watch uh, would be, is it possible to break the uh, Republican military connection uh, if President Trump finds it convenient to throw the military under the bus? And we, we have seen him take on uh, Admiral McRaven, uh, who wrote an op-ed, uh, we've seen him now, uh, apparently strongly disparage General Mattis called him the most overrated general in history recently. Um, gold star families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gold star family. And, and when he was campaigning in 2016, I mean, he basically said the generals, you know, the general, the generals quote unquote, uh, are idiots and I know how to fight wars better than them. And yet that, you know, that didn't seem to hurt Trump, nor did it cause Republicans to go, well, Trump says the military sucks, so therefore I'm now going to think it sucks. But, you know, what would where would be the breaking point? And I, I, I think Trump actually probably has a lot of room to run there as long as he's going after specific named generals who can be portrayed as having wronged him. And where if you look carefully um, it kind of fits this, the overall new pattern for Republicans of elite elites versus non-elites. And Trump always says great things about the troops. His comments on recent uh, court martials of special forces personnel, uh, you know, he always seems on the side of the warriors, you know, the tough guys, the basically senior NCOs being tried on various sorts of misconduct and against the uh, the Jags who are prosecuting them in the same way that Trump is very anti FBI, but pro kind of local beat cops. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see in, if, if that if for some reason. Trump really felt that, you know, something went badly with a military intervention and he wanted to throw the generals under the bus. Will he be able to really play up? A, hey, the the troops, you know, the, the you know, the, the young men and women, they were great and their generals failed them. Uh, that'd be an interesting experiment. Uh, you know, and will if it comes to it, would Republicans follow Trump and other political leaders or will they stick with the military? Uh, on a, what we might be able to do to uh, to address these issues, um, yeah, the the main mostly this is a symptom of larger polarization and partisanship. So there's a limit to how much we can do to fix it, uh, especially since a, a lot we rely on a lot of norms, and you know, we're not so good at norms these days. Um, one thing that I I would love to see that I, I think would might help slow down some of the uh, partisan you know the the partisan perception of the military is I would like to see uh, DOD do better at broadening the recruitment base, particularly for officers. Um, on efficiency grounds, DOD actually reduced a lot of the ROTC presence at uh, particular, I mean, kind of the, especially at like elite 
uh, Northeastern institutions, because uh, relative to the number of students, the number of officers you would get recruiting at, you know, Texas A&M or, you know, Florida State or something, you just didn't get as many officers per dollar of recruiting effort. Um, I'd love to see us broaden the recruiting base and really try and ensure that we're not, you know, that, that I think for a host of reasons, but politically too, because uh, I, I do worry that there's a self-reinforcing cycle these days where if youth perceive the military as very Republican and conservative leaning, uh, youth who are themselves not political, uh, politically conservative and Republican leaning may be avoiding service. And I've, I've seen a bit of survey evidence suggesting that that may be going on. So I'd, I'd like to see us do what we can to uh, broaden the recruiting base for you know, general intellectual diversity and, and particularly for help on the perceived political alignment. That is a, a fantastic suggestion and entirely reasonable, which almost ensures it, it won't happen. Uh, well, thank you, David. Uh, thanks, John, uh, for a great conversation. Uh, thanks to our producers, Cecil Sherman and Luis Ahumada Abrio, and to all of you for listening. To continue the conversation, our Twitter handle is at Power Problems. And if you like the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. 